Hello, welcome back to Slightly Fox and the first of our new quarterly podcast. Now, as regular listeners will remember, this year we're moving to new, longer episodes and we're going to be releasing them quarterly rather than monthly. We all love making the podcast, but it has to be said, the research and the editing, it is time consuming. And the team here, as you all know, is small. Uh, So we're hoping this will give everyone a bit more time to do their actual job of producing the quarterly magazine. Uh, Thousands of you subscribe to that already. So I know you can imagine just how much work goes into making every single issue of that. Today, we have two erudite guests joining us remotely, and we're going to be discussing the novelist Barbara Pym. Now, if you don't know her, she was a mid-century writer, often described as a latter-day Jane Austen. She disappeared from view for 16 years mid-career, only to return to a Booker Prize nomination. We'll meet our guests in a moment. First, though, hello to Fox editor Hazel Wood. Hi, Hazel. Hello. What news? Well, Gail and I have been doing a lot of reading of page proofs at the moment because the um, summer issue is just going through. And I have to say, I think it's a very good issue. We've got... A piece on Alison Lurie and the war between the Tates. Eric Newby, A Short Walk in the Hindu Kush. Uh-huh. A piece about Julia Childs, Mastering the Art of French Cooking, which is a rather extraordinary story of how it became so popular. Yes. A biography of Pevsner and the buildings of England and what the man was really like. So it's a very good, lively issue. And, of course, we've got another of the Slightly Fox editions. We've already issued the first part of Flora Thompson's... It's an autobiography, Lark Cries to Candleford. And we're now doing Over to Candleford and Candleford Green. And um, I've actually written about it, and the piece will be the foreword to the book. And it was amazing coming back to it. it. It's astonishing to think of this person who grew up in a very remote country village. She was the daughter of a bricklayer. And yet she was a completely assured writer. So busy as ever, Hazel. Uh, Fellow Fox, Anna Kirk is with us too. Hi, Anna. Hello. Hi. Nice to be here. Now, time to introduce our guests. Paula Byrne, who published a biography of Barbara Pym last year called The Adventures of Miss Barbara Pym. Hello, Paula. You're joining us from the States. Whereabouts are you? Oh, hello. Um, I'm in Arizona. Oh, how lovely. I'm I'm envious. It's pouring here. I bet it's not pouring there, is it? It's not. It's the morning here and it's blue sky and it's just gorgeous. A bit colder than normal, but it's lovely. I'm not complaining. Lucy Scholes is with us too. Lucy writes about books, film and art for the FT Observer, New York Times Book Review, many others. She's a long-standing Barbara Pym fan. She's also now senior editor at McNally Editions. And this is, um, Lucy, this is a new series of paperbacks, isn't it, devoted to, to hidden gems? Yes, that's right. It's an American imprint, the publishing arm of the McNally Jackson bookstores in New York. And we are devoted to publishing hidden gems, things that have fallen out of print and that we think deserve to be rediscovered and, and given a, a second chance, let's put it that way. Well, very akin to our own efforts. I must say I'm envying you that job. That sounds very fun. It's been great fun so far. It's been a real kind of steep learning curve for me because it plays into a lot of stuff that I've been doing already, but not in the sort of official publishing sense. I don't know, I can't wait for everyone to read the books that we've got coming up. So, yeah. (laughs) We are delighted to have both of you with us. We're going to talk about Barbara Pym. Then we're going to broaden out a bit and take a look at some of her female contemporary writers. But Paula, I mean, Barbara Pym isn't a name that everyone will know, I think. Uh, You published, as I said, her, her biography last year. Why did you pick her? Yes, she is a bit recherche, isn't she? She's very popular in Oxford for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> um, so I, well, she was an Oxford student, wasn't she? She Maybe that's why. was an Oxford student. And I came to her quite late. Funny enough, Lucy talking about hidden gems. For me, Barbara Pym was a hidden gem. I found her in a second-hand bookshop in Oxford. 
and thought, who is she? And I just laughed out loud after I just read a few sentences and I just knew it was sort of love at first read. Well, we'll get into exactly what it might have been that made you laugh in a bit, but can you just give a bit of a potted history of her own early life and how she came to be a writer? She uh, she was born in Oswestry Street in Shropshire. She went to school in Liverpool. She was 16. She went along to Boots when she was 16. Um, and she found, she borrowed this copy of Chrome Yellow. And it totally changed her life. It was a book that made her want to be a novelist. She just thought it was so extraordinary. And she was terribly funny about it. She did, it's just about rich people sitting around, you know, talking and shit of which I knew nothing <laughs> yes. and then and then she wrote a parody of it um, a little parody of it called Young Men in Fancy Dress and she said I had no clue what rich people who sat around in Garsington talked about but uh, <laughs> but I just thought I'd, it just was such a wonderful topic for a book she came up to Oxford in the early 30s um, she wasn't a particularly outstanding student in fact she was a bit of a nuisance really she we used to sort of chase men around the Bodleian and drown the streets of Oxford and was a bit of a limpet and she had a taste for these gloriously handsome and unsuitable men but all the time wanted to be a writer and um, she you know was secretly writing at Oxford this perfect classic comedy and nobody knew about this nobody knew she even had aspirations to be a writer um, and it was only you know, when she was 21, she read some chapters to her set in Oxford and they all just realised that she was a bit of a hidden gem. You mentioned Aldous Huxley's Chrome Yellow. It, it was, as you say, a key book for her, wasn't it? Yeah, she found it in Boots Circulating Library in Oswestry, the shop that we know, the drugstore, the chemist store. Yeah. And it had its own lending library. And this is before the days of municipal libraries, of course. So it was a lifeline for people, particularly people like Barbara in a village that didn't have access to great bookshops. Yeah. So Lucy, when did you discover Pim? Gosh, I feel like she's one of those writers who I've always known about. You know, there are certain writers that I think you hear other people recommending, they talk about so fondly, and Pim is one of those people who a lot of people whose opinions I value very highly when it comes to their choice in literature would be fans of Barbara Pym. But I think I didn't read her until actually kind of relatively recently, the last few years, I finally picked up, and it was Quartet in Autumn, one of her later books, uh-huh. which I'm sure we're going to talk about because of the context of her second life, as it were. Yeah, I mean, I must say I'm much the same. I'd say I've read her in the last 10 years, maybe, but not mm. before that. I mean, Paula, you said she made you laugh out loud. This is not knockabout humour. So for people who don't know the work, can you typify her style for us? Well, her style changed a lot. Her early works are very light, effervescent, really laugh out loud funny. It's very, very hard to make people laugh. It's the hardest thing in the world. So she's got perfect comic timing. Her dialogue's really funny. Her characters... You know, she does owe a lot to Jane Austen. And then as she progresses, I do think her novels do become more serious. And as her life took a turn, in some ways, she, she was broken-hearted. And those things are reflected in her novels. But in those very early works, there's something just incredibly joyful, almost like reading a P.G. Woodhouse perfect comic novel. I mean, would it be fair to say, and I don't mean to be disparaging in this in any way, not a great deal happens in her novels. It's all about the characterisation, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that's the sort of novels that she wanted to write. You know, she's not that concerned with plot, although I think 
some of her later plots are very intricate and interesting. But yeah, she's absolutely interested in character and dialogue and comedy. The small things, ordinary things, the commonplace, the quotidian. You know, later on, we'll come to that later, but she sort of said, oh, why don't people like just ordinary things? Ordinary things are the things that really matter in life. So she was quite unapologetic. She wanted to write in her own way. I was certainly struck by her kind of debt to Jane Austen. I think it's in... um Yes, it's in The Sweet Dove Died. She says there was something about the idea of an orphan that brought out the best in Humphrey, that desire to do good without too much personal inconvenience that lurks (laughs) in most of us. She's just so brilliant at spearing the sort of inner motive, as it were. Gentle skewering, yes. Yes, I completely agree. And I think that actually she works when does in very small scale communities and casts of characters. That actually gives her quite a lot of freedom to then be quite particular in how she then engineers her plots. She can kind of master all of those characters within those limitations and use that to her advantage. And again, I think that's very much like Austen. And I also, I really appreciate how some of her characters crop up in other books you kind of get to know them and it's quite an intimate thing I think for an author to then that you get Mildred and Everard from excellent women cropping up in later novels yeah I mean Paula there are some running themes aren't there the Anglican church and single women involved with the church and anthropology of course because she worked in the anthropological world didn't she for most of her career she did, and she is quite an autobiography. The, th- the biggest um, revelation for me writing her biography was the extent to which she was an autobiographical writer. So her novels really do reflect her experiences, I suppose, like most people, but like her first novel, which was about her Oxford set, but sort of transposed 40 years hence into a village, is very much sort of of her time. And then when she worked at the African Institute, you know, she made use of good copy when she was there. Later on, her travel, some of her unpublished works as well. So she is definitely somebody who draws on her personal experiences. I mean, we said that she writes very well. We all thought that as soon as we started reading her books, but she struggled to be published, didn't she? That first novel, Some Tame Gazelle, that was published in 35, I think, wasn't it? But it was rejected by various publishers, wasn't it? It was rejected. And I think the really interesting thing about that novel is that she wrote it when she was 21. And it was quite a different beast to what the published version was, not least because there's kind of a lot of Nazis in the first version. Mm. You know, her friends are saying, omit the Nazis, Barbara, you know, and she sort of ignored them. And so it was quite, it was a while till she got published and she rewrote it. And of course it got better when she edited it but it was in itself really rather perfect um, and that was the the genius of her she was sort of scribbling away at night and there she was you know writing this perfect novel yes I misspoke didn't I because she wrote the book in 35 but it didn't actually appear until 1950 did it I mean a long long time later that's right yeah I mean having referred to the Nazi problem in that novel <laughs> Paul you better explain what the deal was there with Barbara and her Nazi well how to, how to put him lover well yes this is one of the surprises Prizes. I mean, people, this is obviously before the war. We should yeah, make this clear. so when she was still a student, she, she loved German, she loved the language, she was very good at languages, she loved the poetry and the music and the landscape. And she went to Germany with the National Union of Students in the early 30s and she fell in love with a very handsome Nazi called Friedbert Gluck, who was close to Hitler. And the relationship lasted for quite some time. Um, and so when she was writing and refining this first novel, she used a lot of what she'd had experience 
in Germany in that book in which she imagines that the Nazis are all exiled into Africa. And it's sort of quite playful. But she did see a lot. And in the course of my research, what I was very sort of shocked to uncover was just how close she was to a man who was very close to Hitler. And of course, she deeply repented afterwards and did her duty during the war. But it was quite a shock when I read her war diaries and became aware of just how familiar she was with that very unsavoury aspect of history. I mean, as you said, she was a romantic, wasn't she, and remained one throughout her life and dived down various unfortunate romantic alleys right right up until the point almost when she died didn't she yeah she was very unlucky in love and she did have a taste these gloriously gorgeous selfish unscrupulous men of course and she wrote great comic novels based on those men yeah she had a revenge on them didn't she in print (laughs) Always. Um, And, you know, for me, this began in Oxford and she would fall in love with these gorgeous, unsuitable men. And then the men became more and more unsuitable. And the sort of epitome of that was falling in love with gay men, which, you know, could never end well for her. And then sort of falling in love with dead men. It was just like, um, but then we, you know, so she used that experience and she put that experience into the novels. It seemed almost kind of masochistic the way she went for these men. They treated Mm. her so badly, didn't they? Yeah, they did. And there was something of the masochistic in her you almost wonder whether she wants to copy because at one point in her diary she says or what is it I really want do I want to be loved or do I want to be heartbroken so I can write about it yes I mean you almost get that don't you I mean she was a deeply religious woman as well wasn't she Uh, she was she was a very sort of churchy woman that's again reflected in her novels she went through a period I think where she lost her faith when she got very ill and I think what she really liked about the church was the community and the people she loved high church she loved incense you know there was lots and lots of jokes about going over to Rome one of her great friends Robert but Liddell was a Catholic and so lots of the letters talked about religion. I mean, my book was very much based on the manuscripts and I was quite surprised there wasn't very much about her faith, but I think that's because it was very private. Like many of us who have faith, it's something we don't always talk about, but it's very much part of our, you know, our lives. Yes, absolutely. It wasn't a showy thing, was it? And unlike quite a lot of her literary contemporaries, she never did convert to Catholicism. But going back to Some Tame Gazelle in 1950, that's published... And that's the start of a very productive period for her, isn't it? Absolutely. And she'd been working on lots of different novels. And there's a wonderful novel she was working on during the war, which she called her home front novel. And I'm just so sad she didn't finish it because it's just a fantastic depiction of the way in which the war galvanised women whose lives are otherwise quite dull and boring. So you'd get these remarkable, redoubtable spinsters like Agnes Groach, who, you know, everyone thought she was a bit of a nuisance until war broke out. And that all of a sudden she gets the evacuee children she's fantastic you know she says get you know get the Lysol out let's get the lice out the hair (laughs) but she had my point being there that she'd been working on lots of different novels so when she was published a little bit like Jane Austen Jane Austen was working on three novels simultaneously before her first novel was published it wasn't so difficult for her to start churning them out because she'd been writing them during as I say she started at the age of 21 so she had this sort of stock of stories ready to go and then had a very sort of 
well-received readership and the libraries, the Boots Lending Library loved her and that was her bread and butter. So off she went. I mean, she was a celebrity, wasn't she? It'd be fair to say at that time. She became very popular. Yeah, she did. I mean, she was still quite niche, you know. I suppose I, amongst the more intellectual readers, maybe I should put it in those terms. Yeah, absolutely. And because she was still working, she didn't make very much money. She needed her job at the Institute. And lots of people didn't even know she was a writer. She kept it fairly quiet. A bit like Jane Austen. Jane Austen at the time. Nobody, those who knew, knew she was absolutely a genius, but she wasn't massively popular. But look, she was published. She did well. She thought she'd be published pretty much for uh, forever. She just thought, I'll just keep going. I've got all these new ideas. It was very important to her morale and to her self-worth that she was a novelist. And then she ran into a huge problem. Didn't she? Unexpectedly. Well, she did. She was dropped by Cape, her publishers, which was a great shock to her. It was in 1963 when the world of novels had really changed. It was much more sort of kitchen sink. A lot of men started dominating the literary scene. And Cape just felt that she was out of kilter. And she said, offloaded. She said, they've offloaded me. And it was devastating for her. And for a period of 15, almost 16 years, she was what she called in the wilderness. So mm-hmm. she, she wasn't published and as I say, she sold well. She had great reviews. She had a good readership. She knew that the 60s were, you know, obviously a very different era. But I think some of her novels reflected those changes. But it was devastating for Barbara. Yeah, I mean, they thought she was dated, didn't they? She just wasn't outspoken enough for the, the zeitgeist of the time. And they didn't think that she would find readership. And yet, I think I read this in, in your own biography, the lending libraries, they still wanted her books, didn't they? Lots of people did actually still want to read them. Is it the sort of demise of Boots and the lending libraries and all that that also contributed. That's absolutely right. I, I got very interested in the Boots Circulating Library and it really was the demise of those uh, circulating libraries that enabled the publishers to have the leverage to say, I don't think you're going to sell. So that that didn't help, but there was a sense that she was out of kilter, that you know she was reading all these novels and saying, oh, it's all sort of sex and rock and roll and I'm not mm. writing about sex and rock and roll. But in fact, she was writing about women falling in love with bisexual men I think in many ways she was very ahead of her time yeah it was tone wasn't it more about tone her tone was always polite and quite restrained even when she was writing as you say about themes that at the time were very outre I think that's a really good point I think that's absolutely right she's sort of decorous you know that sense of decorum and quiet restraint which is exactly the sort of novel she wanted to write with those devastating one-liners she lamented to Philip Larkin amongst other people why do people not want to read my sort of book anymore and they did want to read her book she just didn't think and you know after all these years people still get very angry with Kate for dropping her I've spoken to people (laughs) It became such a noted case. People say, how dare Kate? It was monstrous. It was monstrous. People are not over it. And she was really furious, wasn't she? She never forgave the man who did it. No, she didn't. She got her revenge, you know. But um, And it wasn't just that she felt awful about being dropped. It was the way she was dropped. And this is what her friends who rallied around said. They didn't even bother taking her out to lunch and saying, I'm really sorry. You know, it was done in a very rude and abrupt way and a way of that's it. You know, she said, well, what about another? I'll write another book. And it was very much no. Mm. And I think that affected her too. It's just fascinating listening to all this. I was just wondering as well, was there something to do with some of her settings as well, the sort of more small town or small communities? And were people more interested in reading about 
about sort of swinging London during this period as well? I think so. And again, you know, her novels do reflect, you know, Bedsit Land, young women after the war, like Mildred, mm. an excellent woman. You know, she is somebody who is living her own independent life. And I think Pym reflects that brilliantly, you know, independent women not getting married. So it's sort of curious, which is why I think probably you're right to talk about tone. And, you know, I love all that sort of knickers on the in the, in the, in the, in the, <laughs> the, the kitchen, on the radiator and across the pulley. and of socks. And also women being put upon all the time. Yeah. You know, because you're not married, everybody else just uses and exploits you. There's something so tragic about Mildred. Mildred's only in her early 30s. She's the same age as Barbara when she wrote it. She's not an old spinster. A lot of men have been killed in the war. And I think Mildred reflects those changes. And, you know, as Larkin said, she expects a little for herself. I think her novels do reflect that, but somehow they were perceived as almost not masculine enough. We yes. want these male writers coming in and being brash in sort of John Brain room at the top and all stuff yeah. like that. And isn't the perception such an interesting issue, though? Because I think it hasn't just happened to her, but it happens with a lot of other women who are grouped into that sort of awful, very umbrella term, sort of middle-brow women's writing. This idea that it isn't interesting or it isn't important, it isn't about the real world, it is just about sort of bedsit life or domestic trials. I love the idea, or I'm really fascinated by the idea, that this was sort of happening to her in the 1960s, and yet it's still something that we're kind of dealing with a little bit today when we think back about women like Barbara Pym. I think a lot of people who haven't read her might assume that she writes about a certain type of, let's not say dull, but a sort of woman who leads a quite limited life. Conventional. Yeah. A very conventional life, a very limited life, and maybe doesn't have a lot to tell the rest of us about the world but as we've already said you know everything is in her books it's just in miniature and the domestic world or these kind of smaller communities are just as important and just as full of kind of intrigue and excitement as anything on the bigger world stage. I think that's brilliant. And, you know, they often use the word cosy in a derogatory sense, her editors and right, publishers. Right, exactly. Um, you're cosy. And Barbara said, well, actually, is anything wrong with being cosy? In fact, I don't think her novels are cosy at no, all. No, not at all. No. I really you wouldn't know, use that Anybody word. who says Jane Austen's cosy, you think, well, you're just not reading it properly. Mm. What are you talking about? Yes, I mean, her But her I think own. even I had that sort of impression before I read it even though I knew there were people whose opinions I really valued they were big fans of her work but there was also this kind of prevailing notion that she was a very women with a small w women's writer yeah I think the whole human experience is there in Barbara's novels isn't it it's just she doesn't do it in technicolor and she doesn't do it on a big platform and so you have to look Mm. for it and you realize you know suffering and joy and grief and love and it's all there I guess that was it they just thought well that's not what we want in the 60s and, and terrible for her, as you say, Paula, absolutely terrible. She's dropped unceremoniously, rudely, by Cape. And then there she is. But she keeps on writing, doesn't she? She does, because I think it's like Jane Austen. It took years for Jane Austen to get published. When you know you're good and there's a confidence there and she kept on writing and all these manuscripts in the linen cupboard and she kept on developing in her own way. I mean, I think um, A Glass of Blessings, it is such a wonderful novel because the way that she controls the narrative is that everybody else knows Wilmot's in love with a gay man except Wilmot, you know? (laughs) And it's really, really hard to do that in a convincing way that you kind of want to go Wilmot can't you see what everyone else is seeing Piers is a you know is a drunkard and he's gay and he's got a lover and you sort of want to scream at it and I just think that the mastery of which she's handling that is so brilliant the other thing about Pym is that she deserves rereading and the more that you reread her 
the more rewarding it is. And to keep doing that, and it was heartbreaking because she kept sending out these manuscripts to all sorts of other publishers, and yet she kept trying, kept trying, and most importantly, she kept writing. Yes. I mean, as you say, thinking about, you know, women falling in love with gay men, she did that herself, didn't she, in midlife? She did. I think she, there were more than we know about, really. But she did fall in love with gay men and bisexual men. But she understood men. that Skipper, this, this guy, was gay, didn't she? So it was a strange relationship. Oh, completely. It wasn't that she was, you know, misled about that, but she, she loved oh, him. Oh, she loved him. And, you know, he loved her. There's no question. And I think, like some people, she thought she might be able to change him because they did get on brilliantly. I mean, when you read the letter, Letters are so passionate, darling, dearest. Goodness knows what was really going on, but it was very intense. Yes. And I think she knew in her heart it could never be, but she was still going to keep trying. And she just brings that out so brilliantly in The Sweet Dove Died, which I think is her masterpiece. Just that utter hopelessness of being in love with, in that case, a bisexual man and knowing that you're never really going to win. She's so on top of that material. It's just so beautifully done. And during those years when she wasn't published, she was buoyed up by people like Larkin, who said, Philip Larkin, who said, keep writing. They're all mad. They're going to come around to this and, you know, just keep writing and don't stop writing. And that was very important, that a coterie of friends rallying around her and telling her not to give up. Let's talk about Larkin, because that was a strange friendship, wasn't it? He wrote to her, didn't he? When he was very early career himself. Yeah, he wrote a fan letter. I mean, can you imagine Philip Larkin writing a fan letter to Bob? It's him. hard to picture. <laughs> it's just so glorious, isn't it, when you think about it? Um, he wrote her a fan letter to say that he and, and his lover, Monica, were, were big, big fans. It was, and and he said about 1960, 61? Yeah, exactly. And then he says, look, I've read all of your novels and you're brilliant. And I want to write a review essay of all your novels. How do you feel? And so she wrote back and said, oh, that's really wonderful. And I've got this book and I'm writing it. And then she got dropped and then wrote to Philip. And he was incandescent with rage. So it was a correspondence relationship and epistolary, very 18th century yes. relationship. It began Miss Pym and Mr. Larkin and then it was Dear Bart and then it was Dearest Philip, you know, over a course of 15 years. And I just wanted to jump with joy when Larkin just said, you know, how dare they? You're so brilliant. And, and he was just... Honestly, utterly fantastic. But they didn't actually meet in person for about 15 years. <laughs> That's right, they didn't. They eventually met in the Randolph Hotel in Oxford. Um, but it was such a lovely relationship, the correspondence. Two writers writing about how important the commonplace is, how important the ordinary life is. This is what is important, you know, relationships, love, betrayal, heartbreak. And so there was this gorgeous correspondence between the two. It was rather lovely they didn't meet. They were both very shy. Yes. And so they were able to reveal their innermost feelings and actually sort of didn't really want to meet if they got enough out of the correspondence. I say gloriously 18th century and old-fashioned. Yeah, I mean, as a biographer, it must have been so fun to read both sides of that correspondence. Oh, absolutely. It's quite a rare thing often to get such a... A correspondence that's great on both sides, you know. Yes. I thought Philip Larkin was remarkable. He was so kind. She was at a time of the life and she was so low. She just needed that championing and it couldn't have come at a better time. And it kept her going. Yes, and he was becoming, of course, much, much better known and lauded during that period when she was fading away. Oh, absolutely. And he sent her his collections of poetry and, and they discussed his poems, that wonderful lines on a photograph album. And she wrote and said, oh, you know, I read this and he said, oh, it's all rather pim, you know. And it was a very sort of literary thing. And, you know, she loved the things he wrote about. They were the things that she wrote about. Loneliness. 
bedsit land. Yes. Work, the, the work of being like a toad. I mean, these were all things that they had in common. And then... In 1977, so a long time, what, 15, 16 years um, since she'd been published at that point, a wonderful thing happened. And again, it was Larkin because he was the chair of the Booker Committee. Um, So two things happened. First, the TLS, the Times Literary Supplement, ran a piece about who are the most underrated novelists of the 20th century. And she was the only person to be named twice. She was named once by Philip Larkin and once by Lord David Cecil. So people said, well, my goodness me, who, who is she? And then she was almost overnight rediscovered, which was just remarkable. And then that was followed by, again, Locke and championing her for the Booker Prize. So these two things happened fairly quickly and that led to this resurgence, this renaissance. And everybody was so delighted for her. And she was justified in her keeping on writing. I mean, talk about a handbrake turn. I mean, it was just a complete reversal of her fortunes, wasn't it? In a moment. And all of these friends were ringing up and writing to her and saying, oh, have you seen the TLS piece? And, and one of her neighbours knocked on the door and he said I don't know whether you take the TLS but you're named in it twice you know and then other people were phoning her and saying oh my goodness Barbara this is marvellous and she was so thrilled and so felt justified she was starting to get quite ill at that time she was suffering from cancer so it was just a wonderful thing for her yeah I mean the Times Literary Supplement I mean it was pucker wasn't it it was very influential it was the one to be in Oh, it was the one, and I say to be the only, and again, woman writer to be named twice. It probably doesn't get much better than that. And it was such a reversal of fortune because obviously then everybody wanted to interview her, people wanted to publish her again, everybody wanted a piece of Barbara Pym. And she had a lot of fun because her original publisher, Cape, came back to her, didn't they, and said, oh, now we'd love to publish you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, I was so pleased when she was able to turn them down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, I can't remember what the line is in your book, Paul. I think she wrote to someone about it and said that it was you know, very enjoyable for her to be able to say, no thanks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was just so delicious to say uh, thanks, but no thanks. And I I knew I was really good. Of course, she's Barbara Pym, so she didn't gloat. And she had this bunch of novels, you know, in the linen cupboard of all places, in her London flat, ready to go. So she just produced them all. And how many did she publish? Another five or six afterwards. One after the other. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think she probably was one of those novelists that if she hadn't, been dropped and had those 16 years she would have kept probably writing one every two years a bit like Jane Austen you know when Jane Austen was dropped in 1803 by her publishers and then it took her till 1811 to get published you sort of want to kick those people in Bath who dropped her because you think thanks to you we would have had another 10 Jane Austen yes. novels you know thanks a lot mate and it was the same for Barbara I think yes yeah, she kept writing but she didn't write quite at the speed which she would have done but she did write and she did publish five or six novels before she died and your pick of those what would it be I do love The Sweet Dove Died it's so sad and funny and clever and wistful I find Quartet not a bit depressing really but for me her masterpiece is The Sweet Dove Died Lucy what you're thinking oh I'm gonna be awkward then and say I think quarter in autumn for me (laughs) I love a depressing book I do definitely have a sort of an interest in that but I also think for me the way she captures loneliness in that book is so poignant and so beautifully done I I mean I have a particular interest in loneliness in books and I think it really it's always just spoken to me as such a brilliant depiction of it these four characters who just kind of can't quite bridge that divide between them there's a truthfulness there which I really admire I mean, sadly, as you say, she had she had cancer, and I think it was seventy seven, wasn't it? It came back again, 
and she died in um, 1980. Is that right, Paula? Yeah, and um, cancer was in the family, her mother and her aunt, who she was very close to, died of cancer. And she had breast cancer initially, so one of the characters in Quartet Memory has the fake breast. And Barbara talked a lot in her diary about how she felt less of a woman when she had a mastectomy. And in those days, they gave you this false breast. She's sort of terribly funny and sad about the fake breast. But she thought she'd overcome it. She'd been ill towards the end of the 60s, and obviously this was the cancer coming and coming, coming. And then it came back again. And she was so brave when it came back and still funny and would wear her wigs. And and it's typical Barbara, get on with it, don't be self-pitying. She was that generation, wasn't she, that war generation of those remarkable women, excellent women. I mean, that's her theme, isn't it? Excellent women. Women are always going to come up trumps because that's what they do. That's what they're expected to do. And she was an excellent woman. Yes. I think you've been to her home, haven't you? She lived with her sister, didn't she, in in later life, in a little village called Finstock in Oxfordshire? Oh, yes, she did. I always do my footstepping because I love to footstep when I'm writing any biography. And so I went with my friend Pickles and we had a great day wandering around Finstock and going to the churchyard and visiting the cottage and um, sort of beautiful little village close to Oxford. So she... And then one of these lovely things about her life was that the man she really fell in love with lost her heart to Henry Harvey at Oxford and came back to live fairly close and they would go out for the day and take tea and he was one of the last people she saw and I was so terribly moved she wrote about it in her last novel of You Green Leaves what it's like when the man you love comes back into your life really late on yes she seemed to have this great ability to inspire friendship you know she had a gift for friendship a knack for it yeah yes you get that sense But it didn't work out so terribly well on the kind of romantic front. But in terms of friendships, yeah, she seemed to do very well with men. Yes, she did. Um, And women were quite intimidated by her. I met a few people who knew her. Quite a few people said, oh, well, she was quite terrifying. And she was a bit sort of, hello, you know, and a bit Lady (laughs) Bracknell-like. A bit frosty. A bit frosty. But then she'd love children. And so she would just have this Joyce Grenfell and she good oh and she'd make the most ordinary object a bucket a handbag you know just really funny it was just pure lady bracknell but she very much liked being the editor-in-chief younger women felt quite intimidated by her she wasn't always kind to younger women interestingly yeah she did um, come off the page i must say in your biography i i saw her as a kind of I don't know, there was a sort of almost a head girl quality about her, wasn't there? <laughs> Large and... A bit gawky. Bouncy and gawky somehow. At least that's how I... I oh, I'm of... so pleased that, that, because that's exactly that sort of head girl, jolly hockey sticks. Um, yes. You know, the reason her mother sent her to boarding school was because she was reading all those, you know, boarding school stories that were very popular in the 30s. And I think she writes brilliantly about, you know, those girls at Oxford in, let's say, Hilda's in the early 30s, and just the pressure for them to do something brilliant. And often many of them, the best they could do is hope to do is marry a clergyman. And she writes brilliantly about those Oxford reunions and everyone looking around the room going, well, what did you do? You came to Oxford when it, you know women were really just becoming accepted and did you go on to change the world no you didn't she's very clear-eyed about some of that stuff yeah actually just to polish this off I was intrigued 
actually quite early on in your biography, you talk about how she had an alter ego when she was at Oxford, which was a much more kind of beautiful and glamorous and daring woman called, was it Sandra? Yeah, sexy Sandra. Sexy um, and, Sandra. You know, Sandra would wear sort of crimson silk blouses and black satin skirts and she'd wear red lipstick and paint her nails red. And Barbara would be quite staid. So she did sort of split her personality into two to deal with the, you know, she liked sex, Barbara. She was quite unashamed of liking sex. And she, people said she was quite promiscuous in Oxford. And I think she was quite liberated. Um, but by the standards of the day yeah yeah but I think it was easy for her to put it on to Sandra <laughs> Sandra's been really naughty today <laughs> Sandra's made out with five boys shocking Sandra girl. yeah I thought that was very enlightening actually that it was kind of as Hazel said you know, she did look a bit like Joyce Grenfell if we're totally honest but I think she probably in her heart of hearts would quite like to have been a real siren wouldn't she it oh, was not it absolutely. was not to be One of the things that I found fascinating about writing the biography was I tried to read as many other writers as I could of whom I hadn't read that affected Barbara deeply. So there were a lot of women writers, Ivy Compton Burnett, Elizabeth Taylor, um, Chrome Yellow. I hadn't read Chrome Yellow. Elizabeth von Armen, who I think is absolutely superb. So I set myself the task of reading a lot of the women novelists that Barbara read, and it was a revelation to me, I have to say. Yeah, well, I mean, that brings us very neatly onto other contemporary writers. I mean, who would be your favourite female contemporary writer of hers then? Well, Elizabeth von Armen is the best writer, but I love Elizabeth Taylor. Yes, I've only just started reading Elizabeth Taylor's works myself, and uh, I am already a huge fan. Lucy, you're a fan too, I think, aren't you? Yes, yes, I love Elizabeth Taylor. She's um, really brilliant. She's interesting because she had a sort of similar, not exactly the same, but there's obviously, she's somebody who's had a bit of a renaissance in the last few years. There's been much more interest in her work, and I think she was sort of slightly under the radar for a while as well. She was a a little bit younger than Barbara Pym, is that right? I think so. She was born in like 1911 or 1912, I think. Yeah. So they're there or thereabouts, aren't they? But I think she was a very beautiful woman, wasn't she, by all accounts? Yeah, she was very beautiful. And I suppose, and there's that, um, there's a wonderful biography of her by Nicola Bowman called The Other Elizabeth Taylor, which is, because obviously she's not (laughs) a film star, but I think she always gets confused. But they obviously are quite, there are similarities between them. She hasn't quite got Pym's more caustic edge, I would say. There are definite differences between them, but they are both women who are able to see with very keen eyes the sort of emotional complexities of their characters and the sort of minutiae of the world in which they live. Yeah, I mean, the famous one is Mrs Palfrey at the Claremont, isn't it? Which I think was written, is it 71? That was shortlisted for the booker. I think Hazel's been reading that, haven't you? Yes, I found it terribly poignant, just the sort of evocation of, of this woman and her loneliness. and um, Living in a hotel in living London. Living in a hotel. In, in late life. And actually inventing. It was her, it was her nephew, wasn't it? Yes, she nephew invented. didn't come to see her, so she invented another young man into, yes. into being her nephew. Yeah. Yes, I, I found it incredibly poignant. But it is more of the same, isn't it? Small canvas and deeply observational writing. Yes. Were she and Barbara Pym actually friends? I mean, they, they knew each other, didn't they? Yeah, they met. They met a couple of times and... But Elizabeth Taylor was quite shy, like Barbara. And so Barbara thought she could come off as quite aloof. And when Barbara was talking to another friend who met Elizabeth Taylor, she said, oh, don't worry if she comes across a bit aloof. She's actually really lovely, but she's shy. So they did meet a couple of times and and Pym admired her. And I I just really like what you say about that sort of small canvas and the man you share the small world. And I just wonder whether, do women do it better? I mean, I know that's a a ridiculous thing to say, (laughs) but, but I wonder whether women do do that interiority 
better because so many of those women of that time were writing those intense, you know, I'm thinking again of Ivy Compton Burnett, who was a great, very sinister novels. And Elizabeth Taylor could be quite, there's some darkness, Dark. lots of darkness, mm, isn't yes. it? You know, mm. I mean, Angel is the, is the one I think that, you know, strikes me as, as very dark, but rather monstrous writer. And the one where the child gets crushed by a stone statue, it's, it's sort of... Ian McEwen before even McEwen, you know, knew how to write. But I think Elizabeth Taylor, again, maybe prior to um, sort of the way that people understand her now, but she suffered from something very similar to Pym in that sense that people thought that she was writing about kind of small scale, uninteresting things. And what we're saying is that this kind of edge of evil in some of Elizabeth Taylor's work, there's an edge yes. of real sadness, real sort of upset. I think I think of Pym, I mean, maybe it's different. I do like Obviously, I said I love Quartet in Autumn, and that is a very lonely, kind of sad book. But I think when I think of Pym, I do think of the sort of more caustic, witty edge of her. And when I think of Taylor, I think of something a lot darker. Yes. But they both have these yes, incredible yeah. skills as writers. But I think they're easily dismissed as women writing about women's worlds, and those aren't interesting to a larger audience. If you're a fan of Lonely, then Lucy, I'm going to say Barbara Cummings to you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the ultimate, it seems to me, in depicting loneliness, even within a relationship. Tell us, if people don't know, people may not know Barbara Cummings. I've only discovered her recently. Tell us about her. Oh, well, she's fascinating because she's somebody who's always having sort of revivals and then falls under the radar again and then is revived again a few years later. So, <laughs> so, she, so she's about the same. She's contemporary again, isn't she? Perhaps marginally later. Yeah, she must be around the same period, though she didn't. And she did have a sort of... She did have a slight break in her output, but not because she was necessarily dropped by a publisher the same way as Pym, but because I think she moved away from the UK for a while and then sort of had a, I suppose, a sort of second life as an author, wrote a couple more novels in the 1980s, I think it was. But she is a fascinating woman. She writes with a sort of real edge of... I suppose whimsy a certain way slight sort of magical realism in some of her work yes. very odd like sort of twisted fairy tales so quite different to Pym although a lot of her work does when I think of Barbara Cummings I think of usually small well not always but small villages village life that she sort of puts under the microscope and sort of strange things happen in villages and then there are her novels that are set in town and they are usually again the sort of worlds of bedsits young women who come to London who are often quite naive and unsure about how to go about living in the real world and fall foul of sort of anyone who's out to get them and circumstance don't they I mean it's just yes oh, terrible things happen to them terrible thing have happened to Barbara Cummings' um, heroines and it's sort of sad like either I mean in their own families the family in Barbara Cummings' work is always a site of sort of horror and tragedy and yes. threat as well yes home is not a safe place home is never a safe place as what I think one of her sort of best novels is probably the vet's daughter which is set actually slightly earlier it's set in the sort of turn of the century in the Clapham Battersea borders yes. about a young girl who's brought up living with her horrific uh, sort of violent uh, neglectful father who is a veterinarian and their house is full of these sort of mad animals who are being tr supposedly treated by him but he sort of likes to put them down and send them away to be sort of dealt with elsewhere uh, taxidermied and things Taxidermy, yeah. and her mother is very ill and her father puts her mother down like she was an animal I mean it's really quite horrific sort of horror but there's a real lightness of touch as well to Cummings's work. I mean the women she's writing about they're more bohemian aren't they more vivid yeah. than Pims and they lead more kind of rackety lives 
beds than pims in in not very respectable bedsits and um you know living in sin and yeah rackety i think is right and in a way and interestingly it seems that although barbara cummings did write one novel in the 1980s about a house of aging prostitutes which is quite funny called house of dolls it's not one of her better works to be brutally honest but it's interesting that she does tend to write about very young women most of the time so even as she's sort of getting older herself her most of her protagonists do stay relatively young which i think is slightly different to Pym's work yeah I, i'm just so fascinated to hear about barbara comics i don't know her work at all <laughs> oh, well, okay. start with delightful. the vet's daughter i think oh she sounds right up my street i Are think you you'd act- like her yeah. or also um and who was changed and who was dead which mm. was bought out um by daunt books earlier i think it was last year now that's truly surreal that's it? a very very odd one again a wonderful set in a village where there's an outbreak of madness amongst the villagers and it's incredibly creepy very kind of gothic and weird and wonderful my favorite would be our spoons came from woolworths ah uh, yes that's a sort of gateway barbara cummings i think yes i think <laughs> we should start with that that kind of typifies everything i think of as barbara cummings it's she's living with her boyfriend in this bedsit in london that's the more realist end i think what's yeah. interesting about cummings is she has these kind of two sides to her bow that she has the realist bedsit squalid bohemian london life and yes. then she has this kind of much more weird almost yeah. magical realist goes right off piste doesn't she yes. in some of them and some of them do manage to mingle it beautifully and others are sort of very much on one side or other of the divide let's put it that way Anna are you a fan? Yes, I'm a huge fan. And I was just thinking then, I recently reread The Vet's Daughter and then immediately after that, read for the first time A Touch of Mistletoe, which mm. I really enjoyed. But that really showed the stark contrast between the very surreal and that kind of almost... The Vet's Daughter was kind of reminiscent of like Angela Carter, dark yeah. fairy tale. Yes. Whereas A Touch of Mistletoe was much more realist, but I, I really enjoyed it. And I, I think you can definitely see the similarities, but she has a very wide wide-ranging imagination and talking about the focus on much younger protagonists I was quite alarmed in A Touch of Mistletoe that she's very alarmed that she realizes she's getting much older but she's actually in her kind of early 30s yeah exactly that's That's old for a Barbara Cummings protagonist (laughs) exactly (laughs) yeah no she is quite remarkable I was really really glad to discover her and I have still got a couple of hers to read actually because I haven't read it is it A Touch of Mistletoe I haven't read that one Anna but you'd recommend it yes I absolutely would I just read it for the first time that's also just been reissued by Dawn Books Publishing yeah I think she is finding a bit of a new readership yeah I mean I think as a trio of writers these three women I mean they're all middle class English women roughly you know living and writing at the same time they produced work which on the face of it you know, you can see similarities, but they're very, very different writers, aren't they, Paula? Uh, yeah, I mean, I just love this whole concept of hidden gems because for me, Barbara Pym was a hidden gem and my life has been immeasurably enriched by rediscovering her and, and now I've got Barbara Cummings to look to and goodness knows how many other fantastic women writers that we've lost and I think it's such a worthy project to bring them to a wider reading public. So I'm just so heartened to hear this. Paula, I need. I've got. I've got to ask Paula about the dog. Sorry, I don't know if you know Paula and Lucy, but we often have dogs on the podcast because <laughs> lot, lot fox people have dogs. I hear your dog in the background there, Paula. What's? I have what? two little Havanese um, that Zelda Fitzgerald and Coco <laughs> Chanel, little white dogs, and I adore them. I have children as well, but I slightly prefer my dogs. Um, <laughs> 
Not on common, I gather, amongst dog owners. <laughs> I'm a late dog lover and I'm so surprised. I never understood why people go mad for dogs and now I'm, I've become that crazy dog lady. It's the unquestioning love, I think, isn't it? It's <laughs> yeah, it's the eye contact. It's like a baby, they stare at you until you feed them or walk them or, and, you know, I, I can't bear the eye contact. Well, I'm very glad we heard from your dog. So um, I think we, I've got a whole list of female contemporary writers on the page in front of me. We're going to have to leave it there. But um, Lucy, Paula, thank you both so much for being with us. It's been absolutely gripping. Thank you. Thank you for thank having you. me. Will you stay and give us a book recommendation? Sure. Slightly Foxed is a small publishing house in East London. It was founded in 2004 by two editors, Gail Perkis and Hazel Wood, and the team began publishing a quarterly magazine for literary nonconformists all about lost and forgotten books. The contributors are unusual. Some are distinguished writers, journalists or academics. Others, though, come from very different walks of life. 18 years on now, and the Fox team still love finding new readers. The magazine is posted out four times a year to more than 60 countries, and every year they also reissue out-of-print books they think deserve to find new readers. The annual subscription to the quarterly magazine is very reasonably priced. It's £48 a year in the UK and Ireland, and only £56 worldwide. Even better, your subscription gives you free access to the digital archive of all the back issues, and that's over a thousand articles to explore. You can sign up for a subscription at foxquarterly.com, or if you'd rather talk to a real person, give the London office a ring on 020 0258. Thank you. So, book recommendations now. Um, Paula? Yeah, I'm going to kick off with Elizabeth von Armen, who Barbara Pym loved. And I think uh, her book, Vera, which is probably one of the earliest books about gaslighting, and it's utterly brilliant and chilling. And it's such, it's so worth a read. Elizabeth von Armen is a fascinating writer. And um, I would start with Vera, but there are many other brilliant novels, and she's a total hidden gem, Lucy. I'm sure you, you probably do know her, but she's become one of my favourite writers. Lucy, do you know her? I do. I'm embarrassed to say I don't think I've read anything, but is it the famous one, The Enchanted Garden? I think I have read that one, but a while ago. Definitely read Vera, because Vera is so... Oh, no, I have read Vera, because it's like Rebecca, isn't it? It's like Rebecca. Yes. It's like Rebecca. (laughs) Is there any evidence that de Maurier had ever read it before she wrote Rebecca? Do we know? Do you know, I absolutely don't know, but I'm actually thinking about writing a biography of Elizabeth von Armen. She's so, oh, she wow. was H.G. Wells' lover and E.M. Forster was her gardener and her childminder. She's really fascinating. <laughs> Vera is fantastic. You will not be able to put it down. Lucy, what have you got for us in your own right? I'm going to be a little bit cheeky and recommend um, one of the new uh, McNally edition titles, uh, Troy Chimneys by Margaret Kennedy. I don't know if anyone here has read it. No, nope, new to me. Um, what's so wonderful is Margaret Kennedy, I think you'd probably like her, Paula. She was a kind of very prolific writer um, throughout the 20th century. I think she's most uh, she's most well known for her novel, uh, The Constant Nymph, which she wrote in 1924. Of course, of course. Yeah. Yes, and a lot of people know that's been yes. made into lots of films. <laughs> but she wrote so many other novels, and I think her later work is particularly brilliant. And this book, Troy Chimneys, um, was originally published in... Uh, 1953 
and it takes us back to the Regency era. It's set in the Regency era and it uh, is sort of told in a series of sort of letters and journal entries and it purports to be the sort of memoirs of a minor politician um, in, in the UK at this time, a guy called Miles Lufton and he has sort of two sides to his personality. He has the sort of more gregarious, outgoing politician side and then there's another side to him which, sorry, when he's a politician he likes to be known as Pronto and everyone loves Pronto and invites him to their, their parties um, and then there's the other side of him, Miles Lufton, the kind of real man who likes nothing more than to be kind of uh, uh, hidden away at his country retreat and sort of living the quiet life. But it is so beautifully done and it is the sort of the lost Jane Austen novel that Jane Austen never wrote. So I just, the more we talked about Austen and the connection to Pym, I just thought any of, our, um, any of your listeners would probably very much enjoy this book. You've totally sold it to us. The name again, Lucy? Troy Chimneys by Margaret Kennedy. Fantastic. Anna? So I'm going to recommend Two Serious Ladies by Jane Bowles. It's just been reissued by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. The edition I read has a memoir by Truman Capote, who was a great friend of Bowles, and so it just gives you a little bit of background as well, because Jane Bowles is quite an interesting character in an open relationship. They were both gay, moved in circles with Auden, Carson McCullers, and then she went and lived in Tangier. And all of this kind of feeds into this novel. It was her only novel, published in 1943, written in her early 20s. It follows two wealthy American women in their 30s, Miss Christina Goering, who is a single New York heiress, and then Mrs Copperfield, who is very dutiful and anxious. And they go on these perverse adventures. So for Miss Goering, it's a move to a small shabby house on an island. And then she gets involved in a series of sordid encounters with strangers. And then for Mrs Copperfield, she goes on a cruise to Panama, where she abandons her husband for the love of a local prostitute. Okay. <laughs> they then meet again at the end of the novel, and they're both very changed. It's quite an unresolved and unsettling ending but I found it extraordinary that it was written in the early 1940s it it comes across as quite modernist and it's a series of kind of set pieces almost verging on the ridiculous but it is very funny in a very deadpan kind of way you really whip through it and it's got an eccentric cast of characters but that these eccentrics will have a bit of sadness about them um there's like pathetic Arnold who latches on to Miss Goering yeah I I um I thought it was a very interesting tone, but I really enjoyed it and would definitely recommend. I'm finding it impossible to imagine, so I'm going to have to read it now. <laughs> Tell me the title again, Anna. Two Serious Ladies by Jane Bowles. That sounds amazing. Okay, Hazel. Well, I'm going to recommend a book that I was, I was given for Christmas, in fact. It's a memoir by Eileen Atkins, the actress, and it's called Will She Do? I've always admired Eileen Atkins, partly because she's a writer as well as an actress. She's 87 now and she was born in 1934 and she grew up on an estate in Tottenham. She started her acting career really by her mother used to take her round to working men's clubs. She looked a bit like Shirley Temple. It was all a bit sort of saucy and she always vaguely felt that there was something a bit wrong about it. But, Mm. you know, it was extra money for the family. Yes. Her mother took her to a dance school. It's called the KY Dance School with a rather terrifying woman called Madame Yandy. Madame Yandy devised a, a particular kind of dancing for her. She was very good at tap. She had blocked ballet shoes with metal on the ends and she actually did tap on her toes and it completely ruined her feet forever. It was a sort of tough life. 
she didn't go to school for quite a long time, but when she did go to the local school, she so hated it and was sort of bullied that she just refused to go. And Madame Yandy actually paid for her to go to a private school around the corner, which kind of transformed her life. Miss Hall ran this school, and it was a total contrast. And um, she says that even now she hears Miss Hall's voice saying, have you done your best? Yeah. She then went to Latimer Grammar School and, and there a teacher called Mr Burton, who taught drama, could see her talent. But he became somewhat obsessed with her. But he, he taught her to speak properly. And of course, at that time in the theatre, you just didn't have a chance unless you had received pronunciation. Yes. And this is what mm. Mr Burton taught her. It's not always that you find a memoir by a celebrity that you know you feel they've actually written themselves. And it's wonderfully well written and very, very funny, especially about her times working at the Regent's Park Open Air Theatre, which she finally managed to get into. And um, there was a very sort of old-fashioned director there. And the rule was that if there were fewer people in the audience than there were in the cast, they didn't do it. <laughs> Yes, and one night a boy came who was doing it for his A-levels and he was desperate because they wouldn't do it. But anyway, it was a very funny bit where she heard him discussing with the set designer. They were talking about a Shakespeare part. There is Amanda and there is Eileen. Amanda has the body but no voice and Eileen has the voice but no body. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> she sort of hid until they'd gone and crept out. And anyway, she was then called in and he told her that she was going to have the part of Hippolyta and she sort of blurted out, but what are you going to do about my body? <laughs> and he said, oh, don't worry, we're going to build you up, you know. We'll oh, great. Yeah. I mean, she's got a tremendous sense of humour. It, it, I have to say, it tails off a little bit towards the end, you know, with theatrical stories. But, but it, it's a lovely book and I, I do recommend it. It's a light read, but very, very entertaining. Thank you, Hazel. Sounds wonderful. I'm going to order that straight away. I love her. I think she's fantastic. Um, can I just say one more thing? That the yeah. Rebecca, Rebecca was written 12 years after Vera, which is interesting. Really? So going That's, back to your book recommendation yeah. and, and whether Du Maurier knew. Because I'm such a nerd. I, I'm sorry. I just had to check that. as um, Lucy. That's why I'm so intrigued to know whether Du Maurier read it. So if you are going to be writing on Elizabeth von Arman, I would love it if you could answer my question, please. Oh, <laughs> yes. well, well, that sounds like a collaboration. And we definitely want to know the answer. <laughs> oh, I think we're about done. Um, many thanks. Paula, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. And lovely to meet all the other contributors as well. And Lucy, um, thank you very much indeed. It's been just fascinating. Oh, yes. thank you for inviting me. It was such a pleasure. And Paula, a real pleasure to meet you virtually like this. It was really lovely. I'm off to order all of those recommended books, <laughs> I tell you. That's the trouble with this podcast, yes. yes. <laughs> we'll be back with another quarterly podcast on July 15th. So why not subscribe on your podcast app? If you'd like a reminder nearer the time, hop onto the website and sign up for the monthly newsletter. Do not worry if you missed a name or a title because every book and writer we mentioned is listed in the show notes attached to this episode. You'll find them on your podcast app or you can head to the podcast page on the website, foxquarterly.com. Please do rate and review us if you're enjoying the podcast. It only takes a few seconds. And thanks very much to everyone who's already done that. Lots of extremely generous comments on there, which always, as you know, makes us very happy. So until July, thanks for listening and for joining us on another literary trek off the beaten track.